Merita chapter 19. First Samuel 19. This is God's word. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael led David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent the messengers to take David, she said, He's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair out its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? But David fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naioth. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. 
Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are Naioth and Ramah. And he went to Naioth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came at Naioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? We thank God for the reading of his word. We trust him to bless it to our hearts. Do you please open your Bibles back up to 1 Samuel chapter 19? Uh, and as we hear from, come to hear from God's word, let's, let's pray and ask him for his help and his blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that it's living and it's active. And that you desire to use it to impact our lives, to grow in our hearts a, a deeper trust in you, a deeper love for you, a deeper knowledge of you. Father, would you work in our hearts and lives by your spirit tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever panic? Do, do events or, or people in your life ever cause you to, to fret and worry? To, to feel as though you have absolutely no control? You know, a feeling of your, your grip and what's important to you slipping and you don't actually know how the future is going to pan out. Does the, the sin of other people, maybe their unwittingly self, unwitting selfishness, perhaps even just vindictive actions, do things like that worry you? Or maybe not other people's sin, but the effect of sin. It's the broken down nature of this corrupted and tarnished world, facing the difficulties of sickness or unemployment, Diagnoses you don't want to hear, relational strain, or that, uh, that feeling of dislocation from others. Do you ever panic? I'm sure you do. Like, even though I would instinctively say I'm not someone who panics, I'm certainly not a hypochondriac by nature. If, I, if I'm honest, I know I worry, and I stress, and I panic. Things happen in my life, whether directly to me or those that I love, that make me realize I don't actually have any control. And I panic. I'm sure you do too. I think that's why passages like 1 Samuel 19 are given to us in Scripture. Even though it doesn't really look like that's the meaning at first glance. Alistair Groves, he's a biblical counselor, he says, Our emotions are complex. Some of us seem able to ignore our feelings while others feel controlled by them. But most of us would admit that we don't always know what to do with how we feel. 1 Samuel chapter 19 helps us with that. 1 Samuel chapter 19, it shows us sin and sinful people coming up against God and God's people. And even though God's people might not always know what to do with their situation, with their emotions, with their feelings, good news is that God does. In this passage, we see that God knows exactly what he's doing. We see that God is a God who restrains sin. Even when it seems like sin's rashness will wreak havoc on our lives. And God will retaliate to sin. This passage shows us that God is in control. And so we don't have to be. 
If you look at your Bible, you maybe see this passage divided into a certain amount of paragraphs. The ESV uh, clumps chapter 19 of 1 Samuel into four paragraphs. Verses 1 to 7, 8 to 10, 11 to 17, and 18 to 24. Tonight we're going to clump the verses 18 to 17 together. And we're going to work our way through the passage in three chunks. And along the way we're going to see God's restraint on sin. We're going to see the rashness of sin. And at the end we'll see a retaliation to sin. Restraint on sin, rashness of sin, and retaliation to sin. The restraint on sin, verses 1 to 7. You know, at this point in the story of First Samuel, Saul, King Saul has, has really fallen away from the Lord. Not just inwardly, where it's obvious to a few people. But as time has gone on, increasingly it's, it's outward too. And now you see it's gone to the extent where he's actively seeking to kill David, God's anointed. In chapter 18 that we looked at last week, we see Saul hurling his spear at David in a jealous rage. Um, Saul even plots to give his daughter Michael to be David's wife on the condition that David brings to Saul a gruesome 100 Philistine foreskins in the hope that David would be killed. By the Philistines. David though, as we saw, he managed to avoid both the spears of Saul and the Philistines. Killed 200 Philistines and married Michael. Saul's plan hasn't worked. But Saul, as we see, he's not deterred. In fact, he's actually all the more determined to make David meet his end. You see that in verse 1 of chapter 19. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. Saul in his sinful determination he's, he's gone from this secret covert operation sneaking around that only he was aware of and now he's going for the throat. He's going for the direct approach. He's out in the open. No more creeping around and plotting but publicly paying for blood. Saul is this bitter old man that wants his highly esteemed David dead. But, but Saul's confided in the wrong people, hasn't he? Well, actually, the right people, but for Saul's plans, the wrong people, because verse 1 continues, but Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. If this were a rugby match, this is the equivalent of Saul sending his teams a line-up, his strategy, his tactics, his set pieces to the opposition's head coach. We've seen throughout this book that this older man, Jonathan, he loves David. He respects him. He reveres him. He loves him as though he loves himself. And already we see the faithfulness of God and how he moves to restrain and restrict sin. Jonathan right away is able to warn David to steer clear of Saul for a bit while he takes steps to try and secure David's safety. And that's no coincidence. God has formed this bond of friendship between Jonathan, Saul's son, and David. And it's God that's using this friendship to protect his servant. You see that conversation between Jonathan and Saul, verses 4 to 6. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you. His deeds have brought good to you. He took his life in his hand. He struck down the Philistine. And God worked a great salvation for all Israel. Jonathan reminds Saul that he's seen this, that he's rejoiced. And he poses that question, why, why would you sin against innocent blood? 
by killing David for no reason. And Saul listens and Saul swears, as long as the Lord lives, David won't be put to death. Jonathan uses his position to speak truth to Saul, and the Lord uses Jonathan to restrict and restrain Saul's sin. Let not the king sin, Jonathan says. His words have an impact. Maybe not a long-lasting impact, but it's an impact nonetheless. Saul swears to put off his death hunt, to lay down his weapons, and David is even restored to the position that he once had. Verse 7. Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in its presence as before. David's back in Saul's presence, probably back playing the liar in his old job. God has restrained Saul's sin. And we should read that and we should recognize that as grace. You know, when we think of grace, maybe we often think of, of grace in, in terms of what that means for us, our salvation, don't we? Even what a lot of us were taught at Sunday school, to remember what grace means, we give that away, God's riches at Christ's expense. But if you, if you look at this passage and if you look at the world, it's obvious from a Christian standpoint that God is active in this world. God's involved. God's at work. And while God's grace in our salvation is a huge part of grace, we call that saving grace, God is gracious to his whole creation. We call it common grace. God's goodness to all. God's actually gracious to Saul and how he has treated him through David, through Jonathan. Jonathan reminds him of that. God's been gracious in how David has defeated Saul's enemies, has spared his life, spared him some blushes. Saul once rejoiced at that. That God continues to show his common grace, his grace to all, both believers and unbelievers, by sparing David's life, by restricting Saul's sin and the knock-on effects of that sin. God actually uses his common grace in this situation here to bring about saving grace. He spares David's life from David's lineage comes Jesus Christ, who lived and bled and died so that ever who believes in him might be saved. God restrains and God restricts the reach of sin and the stain that it causes. I asked earlier, do you panic? And the answer is yes. But what do you panic about? Maybe, maybe you, you look at the world and you, you see how depraved it is, the way things are going, the steep decline of society, the corruption of culture, and you think, how is this church going to stand against all that? Maybe you look at your kids or your grandkids and you think, how are young people going to faithfully live in a world this dark? Well, this passage shows us that the way way God works isn't to allow the world to impact his people. But rather, God's truth and God's people impact the world far more than the other way around. Will the church remain faithful in these days when it seems impossible? Yes. Why? Because God is faithful. And God is gracious. And God is good to his whole creation. God restrains and restricts sin. Now, things might get a bit worse before they get better. Things were going to get a whole lot worse for David in the, next, in the coming chapters. But God still reigns and rules. And he's in control. 
God's in control, so we don't have to be. Will our young people be able to live faithfully in this crazy, messed up world with its confusion, with its pervasion of human dignity and identity? Yes. God's in control. He's going to restrict sin and he will remain faithful. There's, there's no need for us to be doom mongers mapping out the worst hypothetical situation for us, for the church, for our young people and resigning ourselves to that being inevitable because it's not. We don't need to panic about these things because we have no control over them. We can trust God because he's in control. We don't have to be. Maybe you panic not so much about sin, but the effects of sin. When I say that, I don't mean the effects of your sin, but of sin as a whole. When Adam sinned, sickness and disease and death came into the world. And we panic about that. Those are things we panic about that. And we know we panic about that because those are the things we often pray for. And that's normal. Winston Smith says, mixed emotions are the right response to a mixed up world. Life in this world means the delightful glories of God's handiwork always get the muck of sin and suffering spattered on them. And so we panic and, and we worry about things such as health problems, whether that's our own or our loved ones. We stress about words that come out of a doctor's mouth that we wish we misheard. But in those times it's good to remember that God is in control. And so we don't have to be. There's a lot of language in, in today's culture about fighting sickness, whether that's mental health or whether that's cancer. I think that language is understandable, but I'm not sure whether it's helpful or healthy. God, God in his restraint of sin and his goodness to his world, he's actually given us science and medicine and medics, as well as loved ones around us, as well as the church to care for us and support us. And God isn't like us. He's not caught out or blindsided by our sickness or the latest thing in the news, such as coronavirus. If that's true, if God exercises restrictions in the fallen state of the world, if he's in control, then the onus isn't on us to fight. Well, yes, it's good to take steps to look after yourself, to eat correctly, to take rest, to take the medicine that you are given. But maybe we ought to realize that God is the God who has the power of restraint. Even the power to heal, and that's not saying God will heal you or your loved ones. But he's in control. And he's got this, whatever this is for you. He's faithful to trust him. God restrains sin. Sandwiched in between the, the two sort of bookmarks of this chapter... God's attitude towards sin, you you see that restraint at the start, we'll see the retaliation at the end, but in between those two we see from verses 8 to 17, the rashness of sin. The rashness of sin, it's it's recklessness, it's stupidity. And at the heart of of the rashness of sin, at the heart of all sin really is, is the lack of acceptance that God is in control. You see that with Saul. Saul has rejected the idea that God is in control. And so he carelessly and thoughtlessly has started sinning. He's he's trying to exercise control that he thinks he has. 
Verse 8 tells us, There was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. David's done what he's done before. He defeats God's enemies and Saul's enemies. But again, as before, jealously overtakes Saul. And again, he tries to kill David with his spear. How, how quickly Saul has forgotten. Not just what David has done for him, but also his vow to Jonathan to spare David's life. Jealousy takes over Saul. He wants David dead. He tries to kill the one who has really saved him. That's actually what we do when we sin, if you think about it. And this time David has to flee and flee for good. From this point on, actually, in the rest of 1 Samuel, as long as Saul lives, David is on the run. And when David flees, Saul again trying to be in control of what happens to David. He sends messengers after him in order to try and kill him the next morning. You see that in verse 11. And so like before, when Saul's son Jonathan spared David from Saul, this time Saul's daughter Michael frees David. She helps him escape out the window. And then she goes further to delay those who might pursue David. Verses 13 to 16. She took an image she laid it on the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed, the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Imagine, imagine this scene. Michael's actually done what every child does when they try and hide from their parents, try and pretend that they're in bed when they're actually trying to go elsewhere. Bulking up the duvet, pillow at the top, throw some clothes and a dress and going in there. And that never works, does it? It never works, apart from here. This is, this is like something out of a cartoon. You know, Saul ordering the messengers to bring this bed up to him, and when he pulls off the duvet... There's a pillow there stuffed with goat's hair. You can almost imagine the smiley face Sharpie Dawn, can't you? It's, it's actually ridiculous. This isn't some Ferris Bueller day off at like contraption. It's a duvet stuffed with clothes and a pillow. But sin is so rash. Sin is so illogical that nobody notices until the great reveal. And by then David has run off. That's, that's what sin is like. It's, it's really stupid. It's daft. It's blinding. Sin doesn't allow the sinner to see what's clearly right in front of him or her. Sin ignores the control of God. Sin tries to take control, which leads to panic and inability to carry out even simple tasks like recognizing a pillow is not a war hero. Saul has rejected God's control time and time again. Now he's watching his life unravel before his eyes. He's acting rashly, irrationally, recklessly. He's trying to kill God's anointed. Trying to rage against God and his sovereignty. You might have actually missed it, but Saul's sin is being judged by God and giving Saul over to more sin. If you look at verse 9, you'll see that. What causes Saul to act in this rash way? It says an evil spirit from the Lord. Because Saul has rejected God's control time and time again. Because he's acted so rashly in the past. God is now allowing him 
to be given over to the sin that Saul loves. But what's this mean for us? I think if you're a believer, uh, and you're worried about the impact of the sin of others on your life, I think you're supposed to read this and almost laugh. Saul and his men were tricked by a pillow. How much greater is God than that? But if you're not yet a believer, if you don't yet trust in Jesus for your salvation, God is calling you to open up your eyes and really assess your spiritual situation. Because your life without God is irrational. It makes no sense. It's purely thought through. And like Saul, at the end of it, you're not going to get what you want. Instead of living like Saul, trying to kill the one who has saved you, why not trust in him instead? Jesus Christ lived a life of perfection. He took our sin upon himself. And he died on the cross. He defeated sin. He rose three days later to defeat death, to show that he is in control over all things. He's in control, so you don't have to be. Stop putting up a fight. Stop going through this life trying to grip on with your fingertips to control that's not yours to hold on to. There's no rest in that. It's senseless. Rest instead in Jesus and his faithfulness. We've seen God's restraint on sin. We've seen the rashness of our sin. And then we see God's retaliation to sin. Retaliation to sin. Verses 18 to 24. When, when David fled from the men who were trying to kill him, the, the men who, messengers, this passage says, that Saul had sent to kill him, when he went up to Naoth and Ramah, he, he actually wrote a psalm, uh, a psalm 59. It starts off like this. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. And God does. What is God's response to these bloodthirsty men who seek David's life? Well, two things. Psalm 59 tells us. Psalm 59 verse 5 says that God will rise himself to punish the nations. And then it says in verse 8, You, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold them in derision. That's actually along the same lines of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a psalm that talks about people plotting to try and kill kill God's anointed which David was. Psalm 2, 4 says this, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And you see this really play out at the end of 1 Samuel 19. David has fled to Samuel, and word comes to Saul that this was the case. So he sends messengers to, to capture David, to take him back so that he can kill him. But when they come to where David is, they're met by a group of prophets who are prophesying. You see that in verse 20. Now, it's kind of hard to work out exactly what's going on here. But commentators seem to think that these prophets, they're praising God. Maybe they're speaking God's word. There's probably some sort of music involved here. It's kind of hard for us to imagine. These bloodthirsty men, these men that David describes in Psalm 59 verse 6 as howling, prowling dogs. When, when they see the sight of the prophets prophesying, the Spirit of God rushes upon them and they end up actually joining in 
with the prophesying party, as it were. They get caught up in what's happening. God takes over. They join the gang. And Saul has no control over his messengers. But God has complete control. God is combating sin. He's retaliating. Saul finds out about his messengers. What's happened? And if you look at verse 21, when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers. And they also prophesied. He tried again. It didn't work. It continues. Saul sent messengers again the third time. And they also prophesied. Saul is having no luck at all here. He keeps on losing these henchmen to prophets. Can you imagine his frustration? You can almost hear him muttering in Hebrew to himself. If you want something done, go and do it yourself. So he packs his bags. And he goes off himself. This old king to hunt down David. As he goes up to Ramah where David is. Look what happens to him. Verses 23-24. He went there to Naoth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel. And lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it said, is Saul also among the prophets? You need to imagine this scene, especially because you don't want to. Saul, this old man pushing against God's control, trying to be in control himself. He's marching up to David and Samuel. This anger, this rage, he's going to kill him. And then he loses all control. He is taken over. Everything about him he has no control of. His actions, his words, he starts prophesying. He starts speaking the word of God that he doesn't believe him. He takes off his robes. There's imagery there of him removing his kingly robes, losing his kingship, losing his rule, losing his control. And he ends up lying naked on the ground. It's a cringeworthy sight. When the people say, is Saul among the prophets? According to Richard Phillips, that's with disdain, a negative evaluation of this man who's lost all control. This king who wanted God's anointed dead has found himself vulnerable, vulnerable, defenseless, sprawled out on the ground, naked as the day he was born. And he who sits in heaven laughs. God doesn't just restrain sin, but he promises to combat it. He defeats it and he shows he's in control. God's in control so we don't have to be. Ultimately, God retaliated against sin once and for all and defeated it through Jesus Christ, his son. And Philippians 2 tells us as a result that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For those of us here who love Jesus, who treasure his name, who believe in him through faith, that is a glorious promise, isn't it? But for those of us here who have not surrendered to God's control, for you it will be far more humiliating than it was for Saul. As your soul is laid bare before an almighty holy God, as you profess something that you hate, and as you spend eternity apart from the saving presence of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't have to be like that. 
You, you can't believe in Jesus today. You can confess that he is Lord. You can reach out to him in faith and take hold of the life and love that he gives. You can do that today. And, and if you love Jesus here, if you're someone who because of Jesus, that you, you love God's control, God's control and God's judgment as well, it's actually really good news. He promises us here that he will take care of sin. One day God will end every single consequence of sin. He's faithful. And he's going to do that. He shows us here that he's in control and so we don't have to be. And so I think that if you love Jesus here, the message for you is this. It's don't panic. God takes care of sin. He takes care of us here and now and he will eternally. And when Jesus says to us, don't panic. When Jesus says to us, don't be anxious. He's not waving the finger, shouting, don't be anxious. He's not shouting at us to correct us. He's speaking to us with care and concern. Because I think Jesus knows that nobody in the history of the world who's been told to calm down, calms down. And so when Jesus says don't panic, he points us to the, the meadows, to the grasses of the field. He says if God cares enough to dress them with flowers, will he not also take care of you? When Jesus says to us don't panic, he points to a murderous king on the ground. He says, if I, if I promise to take care of my people, will I not take care of you? If he promises to care for his chosen ones, are you not safe in his arms? Don't, don't panic. And I know it's easier said than done. Maybe David's words in, in Psalm 59 help. He writes, I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you've been to me a fortress, a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. The God who shows me steadfast love. Don't panic. But trust in Jesus. He will take care of you with his faithful, steadfast love. We have a God who's in control. You don't have to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are in control and that you care, that you've shown us your love, you've proven to us your faithfulness. Give us your presence and your peace. Would you help us not to be people who panic? And when we do, would you help us to remember you and your promises and your faithfulness and your goodness towards us? Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.